Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 30. I hope you enjoyed the lessons on Proverbs 12 through 29. If you missed them, they were the quickest lessons I've ever done. Chapter 30 is a uh, very different chapter than what we've been looking at before. First off, we change voices. We change the speaker. If you read in the first part of verse 1, the sayings of Agar, son of Jacob, an oracle. We have no idea who this person is. They are not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. There is some Jewish tradition that this is a nickname for Solomon. But there really is no evidence to support that other than, as I said, a little bit of Jewish tradition. The chapter actually has a different voice than what we've been looking at. If there is a theme that runs through it, it is the idea of humility on the part of the speaker and by continuation of that, a condemnation of arrogance which would be the opposite of humility. And to make things even worse, we have really very little idea what the next sentence even reads. Somebody read the second sentence of verse 1. Come on, you've all got it in front of you. Hmm? I do not have a man's understanding. Verse I am weary. Somebody else. Somebody read it out of the NIV. One. Verse one, the second sentence. Verse one. That's verse two. That's what the NIV says. The other translations say, if you look down at your note down there at the bottom of the NIV, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and faint. It is actually an interesting sentence in Hebrew that if you kind of shift the division between the words, it totally changes the meaning of the sentence. And once again, we really have no idea we have no idea who Ithel and Eukel are. Probably, maybe, sons of Agar, but we don't know. There's lots of confusion about verse 1. So we'll go to verse 2. I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What does this sound like to you? Job. Do you remember Job? Job is this righteous man. Then all this calamity falls upon him. And then there's a bazillion chapters of Job's friends trying to comfort him by blaming him for everything. And God shows up. All through this 
bazillion chapters, Job has been saying, I want to talk to God and I want to make my case to God. So God shows up at the end. He chastises the friends, gets them out of the way, and turns to Job and said, okay, you want to talk? Answer my question. And for several chapters, he asked question after question, where were you when the earth was formed? Where were you when the stars were created? Where were you? Basically telling Job, I'm God and you're not. And that's what we see here. You think you think you understand everything in the world? The speaker says, I don't have a clue. I don't understand the things of God. Where were you? Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Shall we have a show of hands? Hmm, not many hands. Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who can control the elements? Who can control the weather? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who is so large that they can encompass all of the oceans of the world like they would wrap it up in a coat they were wearing? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Who has gone down and says, okay, the earth ends over there, the earth ends over there, and actually declared it to be? But then the next sentence is, what is his name and the name of his son? That's an interesting verse. Quick, what is the name of his son? Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was asleep in a boat and a storm came up and the disciples were all scared to death because they had been in storms on boats and it was a bad deal? And Jesus gets up. Who has gathered the wind in the hollows of his hand? Who controls the weather? And Jesus said, Storm, stop it. And guess what? All of a sudden, the disciples who were scared to death of storms were even more afraid because they were in the boat with the guy who wrapped up the waters in his cloak, who established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? His name is Jehovah. His name is God. And his son is Jesus. Why does he begin this chapter this way? He is dealing with the topic of humility and by comparison, arrogance. He is acknowledging the fact, I don't understand all the ways of life. And the rest of the chapter is interesting because a lot of it is just observations about life. It's like, I don't understand everything. But look at that ant over there. Have you ever watched an ant? He says to his reader, have you ever watched an ant? How they do the things that need to be done? Let's talk about lizards. He's got a discussion down here about lizards. He is observing nature, and he is observing God, and he's observing God through nature. And he's doing it with the proper amount of humility. 
What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Do you understand everything about the world? No, but we understand there is a God who understands everything about the world. Verse 5, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I don't understand everything. What did he say over here? I am the most ignorant of men. Do you really think he was the most ignorant of men? I mean, let's face it, right? He's smarter than some people I know. We have discussed in here before this idea that the more you learn, the more you know, you don't know. You know, haven't you ever been there? I've commented about this before. I was actually a math major. I studied math, and every subject I took of math made me aware of how much more math I didn't know. So while I was increasing in my understanding of math, I was also increasing in my understanding of what I didn't know. So you can understand how he can say, I am the most ignorant of men. I know enough to know what I don't know. Some people are just too stupid to know what they don't know or not know what they, whatever it is. You get the idea. But he's saying, I don't know everything, but the word of God is flawless. The word of God is true understanding. The word of God is what I'm not. The word of God is without flaw. What are the, what does that mean? What are the implications of the fact that the word of God is without flaw? Pardon? He's sovereign. Every promise that he makes is true. No error. Now, it is interesting. There may be parts of it that we don't understand. Shall we go back to a discussion of verse 1? No, we're not going to do that. There may be parts of it we don't understand because we're not smart enough, intelligent enough. We're not God. But if I acknowledge that God is God... And if I don't understand it, the problem is not with God or his word. The problem is with me. Then I am well on the way to understanding that the word of God is flawless. I acknowledge the fact that there's pieces of it I have difficulty with. Go ahead. The observation, the question is, to the writer of this, what would be the word of God? Okay, the word of God would obviously be the text that Moses put together. We know that. That had been collected somewhere. The prophets were still alive and well, and they were speaking the word of God. We have it recorded in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, there was a simple test 
for understanding who was and wasn't a prophet. If everything they said came true, they were a prophet. If one thing didn't come true, then they were just guessing. Stone them and get them out of the community. So it would have been the writings of Moses. It would have been, well, even the kings and chronicles hadn't progressed very far. And it would have been the sayings that Solomon collected. And it would have been the words of the prophets. The prophets were still alive and well. The question is, the word of God is flawless, but then the question is, how is that communicated to us? And we see that being communicated us to us throughout the scripture in a variety of different ways, through prophets, through the signs of nature, etc. So, go ahead. A, l- a little dense? Oh. <laughs> Job is the oldest book of the Old Testament, yes. So it would have been around in some form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every word of God is flawless. That means you can depend upon it, you can count on it, you can take it to the bank and say, that is true. Why is that so important? We have been studying for 25 weeks before today the book of Proverbs, the writings of God, the sayings of God, not my opinion about what the sayings of God are, not somebody else's opinion, the word of God. We may not understand all the implications of it. We may even have difficulty translating at times. But the word of God itself is the standard not our understanding of the word of God. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. There's all kinds of stuff in this verse. He, he is God. God is a shield it protects. What does a, the, the existence of a shield imply? Warfare. Somebody is hurling something at you. Somebody is shooting something at you. Somebody is throwing something at you. Somebody is swinging something at you. You and I are used to seeing shields in museums, right? They're decorations, It's like today we wear crosses for jewelry and we don't understand that in Jesus' time a cross was not a decorative item. For the reader of this proverb, a shield was not a decorative item. It was a necessity to go into a battle for protection because people were hurling things at you. I hope you have seen throughout the book of Proverbs that there are those who are on the path of wisdom and they are trying to follow after the ways of God. And at the same time, there are people on the path of foolishness who not only are leading themselves to destruction, 
they are working very hard at dragging other people, at pulling other people, at forcing other people to go down that path with them. And we need a defense against them. Yes? What did he use? The word of God. Remember, the observation is what shield did Jesus use when he was in the desert being tempted by Satan? He quoted scripture. He used the word of God. Did we happen to mention that the word of God is flawless? He used the word of God as a shield to protect him from the temptations of Satan. He is a shield to who? To those who take refuge in him. What does it mean to take refuge? If you remember, when the nation of Israel entered the promised land, the land was divided up. You know, this tribe gets this much, this tribe gets this much, this tribe gets this much. The Levites didn't get any land. They got some cities, but they were scattered around. And in the midst of all of that, a number of cities of refuge were set up. Huh. What does that mean? Hmm? Help? Well, it's more than that. Protection. I am out with my neighbor working in a field. And I've got my axe and I'm chopping down trees to clear the field. And the head of my axe comes off, whacks my neighbor in the head, and he falls dead. Just like that. Oh, no. Now, in the world today, we call 911. The police show up. There's an investigation. Did you like your neighbor? Most of the time. Did you kill your neighbor on purpose? No. Hmm. Did he like his neighbor? We talked to the neighbors. And we have this investigation. Hmm? You get a lawyer, and if your lawyer's any good and you pay him enough money. No, that's all. <laughs> We're not even going there. In the society at the time, somebody had been killed. Blood had been shed. Blood needed to be avenged. So the family of the man with the axe head in his head would come after the man who had killed him. But it really was an accident. So the man who had caused the accident would run to a city of refuge where he was protected from the blood avenger who was coming after him. But you say, it was an accident. Well, it was an accident, but blood was shed. He ran to the city of refuge, and he was protected, but he had to stay there. How long did he have to stay there? Till the, till the death of the high priest, or something like that. There was a time that he had to stay there. That was a city of refuge. 
every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. When you have problems in life, when you realize that you have sinned, when you realize that maybe you haven't shed physical blood, but you have committed sin, where do you run? Where do you run as a place of refuge? This is interesting because the word of God is flawless. It is a shield, but only to those who take refuge in him. If I am relying on my own ability, if I am relying on my own strength, if I am relying on something else, the word of God is not necessarily a shield to protect me because I'm in the wrong place to begin with. It's interesting when you think about it. The word of God protects those who take refuge in him. Who do we go running to? You see, the proud man says, who gives a flip if I killed the neighbor? I'm tougher than they are. I've got more friends than they've got. I'm going to fight it out. And what you end up with is more blood. I don't know if you've seen the commercials for the miniseries that starts on the History Channel today or tomorrow, whatever, about the Hatfields and the McCoys. Blood upon blood upon blood. That's what comes from taking, well, not taking refuge, but doing it yourselves. When we acknowledge our need in humility, then we run to God and God protects us. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Do you remember the last paragraph in the Bible? Not the last sentence, but it's down there somewhere. Verse 18 of Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do we have this propensity to want to add something to the Word of God? <laughs> Candy's answer is stupidity. We'll write everything down to that. Everybody must 
Everybody must do something. <laughs> do done. <laughs> To fit our own lifestyle. Hmm. We wouldn't do that, would we? The Word of God is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. But once again, that implies humility. That implies that I come to the Word of God and kneel before it instead of the Word of God or something else coming to me and kneeling before me, my reason, my logic, my understanding. And we don't like that. We want to add something to it. The Word of God has this Aura, it is the Word of God. Wouldn't it be nice if by association I took my Word and got that same credibility that the Word of God has? That would kind of make me feel pretty good, wouldn't it? Remember, you should know this, but remember. I take the Word of God, and as a teacher, I attempt to unwrap it, to explain it, to give examples of it, etc. My words are not the Word of God. It is an attempt to understand the Word of God. And when I speak my words, I am accountable to you the elders of this community, and to God for what those words are. If I begin to believe or try to make you believe that my words are the word of God, then there are all kinds of curses in the scripture that come pouring down on me. The Word of God is flawless. It is important. It is, it is what it is. Don't go adding to it. We add to it because we have our own pet peeves about what needs to be done. You know, it just really irritates me when people do fill in the blank. So, I'm going to convince the world that it is in the word of God that you can't do blank, fill in the blank. Well, maybe the Bible doesn't say that. Eh, minor problem. We can deal with that. We can get around that. Just believe me. Don't go reading the Bible. Believe me. That is, by the way, one of the marks of a true cult. A true cult has a charismatic leader who says, yes, the Bible's important, but here's my writings over here that help you understand the Bible. Don't, don't, don't look at that over there. 
It just confuses you. Read this instead. That is one, there are several, but that is one of the marks of a cult. Everything that I say in this class, you can argue with, okay? Except when I'm reading the Bible. Well, you can argue with that too, but we'll have, fun, we'll have more fun with that. I've had conversations with elders and pastors of this church when people have commented about things that I've said. And while I may not like it, that is the right thing to do. Because I am not, I am not God. Trust me. Ask my wife. Well. <laughs> do not add to his words why or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. The word of God is true. The word of God is flawless. The word of God will stand the test of time. But if you go adding words to it, God is going to go out of his way to prove you a liar. It's like you get on his special list. You don't want to be on that list. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Two things. Number one, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Why do you think he would start there? Keep falsehoods and lies far from me. I mean, if you were going to ask God for anything, two things I ask of you, O Lord, before I die. Please give these to me. Two things. And the first one is, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Why do you think that's on the list? He wanted to prove his character. Go ahead. Go back to verse 2. I am the most ignorant of men. <laughs> Temptation. Temptation. The Word of God is flawless. The Word of God is perfect. The Word of God is a shield. The author of this chapter has enough humility to know that he can be led astray. You know, sometimes we think we're pretty tough. Yeah, bring on the temptation. I can handle it. Bring it on. Come on. No. If I want to understand the truth... I will ask God to keep the falsehood out of my life. This is a great display of humility on the part of the writer of this chapter. He knows he's not smart enough to figure it all out. He knows that he can be tempted by those who are leading him astray. He knows all of that. Sometimes we lack that humility. Sometimes we think we are smart enough, we're clever enough, that we can understand everything on our own. That's why God gave us a church. 
That's why he gave us a community of believers, because we're not smart enough. We need the help of wise individuals. We need people who can say, don't go that way. That's falsehood. So the author says, God, two things I ask, and the first one is keep lies and falsehood far from me. Why? Because I am taking refuge in your word. I am taking refuge in you. Your word is protecting me. Your word is flawless, and I need to understand it. And I am so easily led astray. I am so easily led down the wrong path. We've discussed this in here before. You know the way it works, right? You know, you're you're thinking about making some decision, and you know the godly way of doing it, but you're really not that interested in it. So you go find a friend who went the other way, and you ask their advice because you want to confirm what you want to do. You want to get some moral support to follow an immoral path. I don't know if you've ever listened to Click and Clack, the the car people on the National Public Radio. Guy called in yesterday. Had some, well, his car was filling with water. (laughs) It was leaking. And his question was, I'm going to go sell it. Do I have to tell him? And their observation was, so, you want us to confirm that you can hide this from the dealer when you're selling this car. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. But that's, why we, that's how we work. You know, I keep lies and falsehood far from me. <sighs> Easiest observation. The easiest observation. What is a lie? What is a falsehood? That which contradicts the word of God. You would think that would be so easy. But it's not. Look at the world around us today. And once again, there are some things in the scripture that are hard to understand. There are some things in Scripture that people have honest disagreements about what they mean. But there's a lot of it that we don't. There's a lot of it that we don't. Proverbs chapter 5, 6, 7. Don't go chasing after the adulterous woman. But I want to. It's love. Don't do it. Don't do it. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. We've actually covered this passage several times throughout the book of Proverbs because it is one of my favorite verses in the book of Proverbs. When we talk about wealth, and we have talked about wealth a lot, if you haven't noticed, we tend to think about the more the barrier. (laughs) The more I can get, the better off life will be. 
Once again, in humility, in humility, the author acknowledges the fact that there are problems associated with being wealthy. And there are problems associated with being poor. The best path is not to have so much that you turn your back on God. And I might add, there are wealthy people who are great believers. But there is a temptation. In poverty, I will be tempted to break the law of God and go take what I don't have. Great temptations. And I might add, there are lots of poor people who are great Christians because they trust in God. It is the attitude of the mind, and it is a temptation at each end of the spectrum. And we have had this discussion. All I want to add to it today is another observation. How do we judge how much money, how much wealth we need to have? Well, that's a good answer. What's the real answer? How much do the Joneses have? Whoever the Joneses are, I've never figured that out. But we want to keep up with the Joneses, right? I'm going to judge my status in life by my peers, by the people I see on TV, by the people I read about, by some other standard And I can usually find people to show that, hey, I'm on the low end of the scale. How does the author of here, uh, the author of this passage, judge wealth? In the same way we should judge everything in life, what does it do about my relationship with God? Does it draw me closer? Does it bring glory to God? Then it's good. If it leads me away from God or leads me to break the law of God, whatever the dollar amount is, however many zeros there are in the number, it's bad. How do we judge life? Pick any topic relationships, material possessions, what we do with our time. How do we judge any of these things? The criteria should be, what does it do to my relationship with God and does it bring glory to God? Or does it lead me to deny God Or does it lead me to break the law of God? It can be anything. It can be a hobby that becomes an obsession that leads us to turn our back on God or to break the law of God to obtain some end that looks good in the context of that particular activity. It's a different mindset. It is a mindset that, I won't say that it is alien to us, but it's almost. It's different than how we are taught to think about the world. So, 
Once again, we're out of time. The Word of God is flawless. I'm, flaw I'm full of flaws. You're full of flaws. But the Word of God is flawless. <laughs> you got to read it first. We are to take refuge in God. And God will be our shield. Otherwise, we are opening ourselves up to the slings and arrows of temptation and the devil. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that your word stands. Irregardless of the world around us, irregardless of our weakness, your word still stands. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.